One API is an open standard for a unified API to be used across different computing accelerator architectures. This including GPUs, AI accelerators, and FPGAs. The goal of One API is to eliminate the need for developers to maintain separate code bases, multiple programming languages, tools, and workflows for each architecture. James Reinders is an engineer at Intel and has experience with parallel computing spanning four decades. He joins the show today to talk about One API. This episode is hosted by Lee Acheson. Lee Acheson is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His best-selling book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business. Listen at mdb.fm. Follow Lee at softwarearchitectureinsights.com and see all his content at leeatchison.com. James, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. For those who are listening and not yet familiar with One API, One API is. Can you describe and tell me what exactly is One API? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, for better or for worse, we use One API to describe both our tools, which are implementations, and our effort. But the key is really the desire to be able to write code that's very performance portable, that it's device independent rather than write to uh, proprietary techniques. So this has become kind of in the spotlight again because of accelerated computing, because of the use of accelerators, whether they be GPUs or FPGAs or DSPs or AI chips. The desire to make sure that you can write your code and use all this fascinating new hardware has brought us back to these standards. But, you know, it's really not something new in general we have been wanting our code to be portable for a long time, hence standards like C and Fortran and you know Python, whatever. There's hundreds and hundreds of standards to help us with this, but accelerated computing's really done that. So at Intel, we're doing two things. We're really helping support standards to do that, define them, make them truly open with open governance, and we're proving them with implementations. I mean, the standard isn't worth much if somebody doesn't actually implement it and make it work. Right, right. So you mentioned performance. Is performance really the driver for why one API is so important? Is performance the key attribute? The, you're trying to make highly performant portable applications as opposed to just functionally performant applications? What's the driver for the specifics tied to performance? Right. So when you think about accelerated computing, when you think about why do you use a GPU or an FPGA or a DSP or an AI chip to make things run faster, you're trying to make your application run faster. So there's a performance component. Sure, we can give up a little performance in order to make our code portable, but it still has to give you access to that hardware capability. You know, it wouldn't mean a lot if Intel said, oh, we've got this performance portable thing and it works great on Intel hardware. And sure, it supports everyone else. But then you find out that no one else's hardware gets shown off. That would be bad, right? So performance falls into this, but it's a little fuzzy, right? It's what's enough performance. 
And a lot of people have debates about that. If you're programming in Python, you might be more flexible about performance than if you're down in the weeds, you know, with some heavy numerics code in C++ or Fortran. So it varies a little what the limit is. It doesn't necessarily have to be the absolute top performance, but it has to be credible performance. So it doesn't look like you're injuring one hardware and doing great on another. Right. That makes sense. And you've used the word hardware many times here. Is the goal hardware independence? Are you focused on, you know, making standard interfaces for GPUs and things like that? Is the focus primarily on the hardware independence versus the, let's say, OS independence and other capabilities? There's multiple things that fall in play. You've got hardware, OS, and architectures. So I think the givens are vendor independent. So if you're talking about a GPU from, you know, three or four different companies, you want it portable across all of them. And OSs in general, yes, people want their code to be portable across OSs. Although there are a lot of users out there that have picked their OS and the OS portability isn't so critical, but for larger, more popular applications, OS is important. I think a third category is architecture independence. It'd be nice if it ran on a GPU. CPU architecture specifically? Yeah. Well, you know, do you want your code to be able to be accelerated by a CPU when it can do it or accelerated by a GPU if there's a GPU there or if there's an FPGA? And that's an interesting problem we can help with. But, you know, the differences between those architectures put more limits on it than, say, you know, the differences between a GPU from one vendor and another or between two OSs is a lot less than the difference, say, between a GPU and an FPGA. But ultimately, we'd like to, you know, help with all of those problems to the extent that it's useful and practical. You know, I can tell you from some of the earlier days when I was doing a lot of this work, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but the whole idea of having software independent FPGAs was kind of a unique concept in its own right. I mean, when you start talking about using FPGAs, you're almost by definition, forcing yourself down a hardware dependence path. There are interesting elements of it there. What we see with something like an FPGA is that there are parts of it that we can really help with and make independent, like making some algorithms portable. But FPGAs also get their power from being able to program at a low level, handling the network interfaces and so on. And those tend to start becoming unique enough between the devices that you spend some time there writing unique code And that's why I say when it's practical or it's advisable, we can help with certain parts of the problem. So we focus on that. We're not doing some altruistic, let's, well, I shouldn't say altruistic, impractical thing where we say, oh, we're going to abstract everything. But in the cases where we can abstract it so it's portable, why would you implement it multiple different ways just to get the same effect if you could do it once and make it portable? Right, right. Now, I know part of the One API family is a C++ abstraction layer known as SYCL, S-Y-C-L. Is that actually part of One API, or is it a separate standardization effort? Is it a separate entity? What's the relationship between OpenAPI and SYCL? Yeah, so the relationship between One API and SYCL, SYCL is a template library, if you type definition, to extend C++ into the accelerator realm. And by that, I mean, give you the sorts of controls necessary to offload C++ code to an accelerator. There's three things that SICL does. One, it helps you identify what accelerators are in your system. So enumerate them. 
The other is it helps you share data with them. And keep in mind, that's complicated by the fact that C++ thinks all memory is shared, right? So now with accelerators, it's often disjoint memory, right? You can't have the same address both on the device. Sometimes you can, but sharing data. And then the third is to offload code. And it probably runs a different instruction set, which again is something that C++ isn't trying to solve. So enumerate your devices, share data with them, share code with them. Now, I said it was like a template library definition. It doesn't really extend C++ in a strange way, but having a compiler that understands what you're doing so that it can compile the code and produce binaries that run on these multiple devices requires a little compiler magic to make it easy. So that's Sickle. Everything I said was about taking C++ and allowing you to write C++ code and run it on a device. Well, you could say, well, what about libraries? What about tools? What about debuggers? What about profiling standards? That's what one API is. One API centers itself around Sickle, but Sickle is a Kronos standard. It's a wonderful standard from the Kronos group that the same group that did OpenCL, that does Vulkan, does other standards. And so Intel's just a strong believer and supporter of Sickle. But then we've said, hey, what could we build around it? Could we build some math libraries and some communication libraries that all understand Sickle and, you know, kind of complete that Sickle universe. So that's a great way to think about one API is it's, hey, what about all the other things other than just augmenting C++? So Sickle's providing the language or the C++ specific extensions capabilities for working in these hardware environments in standardized ways. And one API is, is a standard for the libraries that sit on top of that. Yes, that's an excellent summary. Great. Okay, well, I'm going to pause here for a second just because I have to tell you a lot of what we're talking about is kind of deja vu for me. And the reason why I say that is about three decades ago when I first started working in this industry, I was working on building a standardized C++ interface library for talking to test and measurement systems. I was working for Hewlett Packard at the time. So this is HPIB, VXI, VME bus, those sorts of things. And I, working at Hewlett Packard, I created an industry standard library for instrumentation IO that was written in C++. One of the first times that had ever been done for that industry. And this was early in the C++ development days. And believe it or not, what we named the library was Sickle. It was with an I, so S-I-C-L. We called it Sickle. I even wrote my first book on that topic, specifically on building portable C++ interfaces for test and measurement control. And all three people that read the book, I'm sure, loved it. But it was a something that was very near and dear to my heart at the time. And it, it's actually still in use today. It's a part of IEEE 1174, I think, is what, what the IEEE standard is that goes with that. And I think it's called Visa now and used by companies like National Instruments and things like that for instrument control. So it's kind of funny that in the basically as a parallel environment doing parallel work and parallel solutions, you end up with a lot of the same things, but 30 years later and the same names even or similar names that are going on. So it's a story not really relevant to what <laughs> your sickle and your one API, but I thought it was an interesting story. But it does beg some of the question is – 30 years is a long time. What's happened in the industry in 30 years that has made this more practical now versus 30 years ago? I know all the problems we ran into 30 years ago. There's a lot fewer problems now or a lot different set of problems and probably a lot harder other problems. 
for instance, I know the C++ language itself is substantially more mature than it was back then. But what else has changed that's made this more of a practical solution nowadays? You know, it is funny what a small world it is and how some of the things like the names recurring or the thoughts. But it is a great thing, question to ask, what's happened in 30 years? I mean, I remember those days well, the early days of C++, the people doing things with it that challenged the compilers that, you know, and people thought you were crazy because who would do this in C++ because the compilers were immature, didn't optimize that well. You'd be much better off writing code like that either in assembly or in Fortran or anything but C++. And of course, C was a very efficient language, but C++ wasn't then. Right. <laughs> and, you know, we looked at the problems with C++ compilers back then. And one of the big problems was the compiler created a lot of temporaries. And that's a kind of a internal to the compiler. It's like, oh, well, you've got this abstraction and this, this polymorphism and this overloading. And, and you know, the, internally, the compiler would say, well, take this, put it here, and then put it here. Well, if the compiler didn't optimize that away, it was doing, you know, extra effort, which slowed down your code, which really could make a mess out of things. Back then, it was like, wow, can we ever build a compiler that can do all of this stuff? Well, computers have gotten a lot more powerful. And I like to say that, you know, people want their compilers to run, you know, compile it in a few seconds or a minute, or they want their overnight tests to run overnight. Well, as computers get more powerful, you can do more in a few seconds, in a minute, overnight. I think that's one of the most dramatic things that have happened in tooling is that things that 30 years ago would have looked really impractical because, oh my gosh, if a compiler did that, it wouldn't compile the program in my lifetime. Now what compilers do is staggering. And that opens up the ability to target hardware better, to optimize for it. I mean, if you, you look at the instruction sets of modern architectures, it's unbelievable how many instructions they have. And, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, assembly language for processors quit caring about people writing handwritten code, it cared about whether a compiler could target it. And it's subtly different, and it needs to be more symmetric, and it's okay if it's a little more complicated because the compiler will do it, but it needs to be something a compiler can target. So we saw architecture evolve to be able to be targeted by compilers more. We saw compilers become more powerful, and it still looks to me like I just say, compile my program, right? But under the covers, the changes in tooling is immense, and so that brings us to the modern days where, you know, we're not accelerating architectures now by raising the clock rates as dramatically as we did for a long time. Instead, we're looking at architectural innovations and things like massive parallelism. So, you know, why is a GPU interesting for some problems? Well, because it's just a massive unit for doing floating point computations. But then you look at other algorithms for AI and maybe something different. People talk about Tensor, but there are other people doing graphs. And, you know, it's an exciting time because there's a lot of hardware innovation left. And when you couple that with how sophisticated the tools can be to just magically make it look like a compile, it's wildly different than 30 years ago in terms of its complexity. On the top, it looks similar. Underneath, it's just we have a lot of knobs we can turn these days, and hence the desire to enable all of that, right? Give me that simple interface, but let me target all these wild variety of hardware that might be coming now and in the future. So a lot more is possible now, oh, yeah. both from the architecture of the processor, which 
also equates to speed, obviously, but also in the compilation process and the sophistication of the compilers, etc. So does this mean that the goal of one API could, in fact, be true independence, hardware independence, or is that still a future state that's a long ways off? And yes, we can do a lot more now than we could ever do before, but the problems are also a lot harder now, and so it takes more effort. Where is the pendulum here? Are we moving or are we keeping up? I think it stays the pendulum. I, as an engineer, <laughs> I'm amused, you know, that if you remember the CISC versus RISC debates that were hot at one time, uh-huh. I, you know, by the time Intel got to the 486, it was, it was fundamentally a RISC chip. It's right. running a CISC instruction set, which, by the way, after a while, people started saying, wow, that's a compact instruction set, which has advantages as well. But what makes me think of risk is, well, if you can simplify some part of your problem, then you can add a new type of complexity. That's how I look at things. So I think that what we need to do is simplify to make core aspects of what we're doing more portable so that we don't have to be rewriting it and re-engineering it on every device. And then we innovate outside of that. And those innovations, the pendulum reference is good. From time to time, there'll be very proprietary innovations. And I think that you watch and innovation can be proprietary, but then you want to break away from that proprietary and you want to generalize it so everyone can use it. And that happens in so many industries and has happened many times in our industry as well. I think that's where we're at is accelerators have become a permanent part of computer architecture. They weren't even relevant 20 years ago, right? There were accelerators. They came and they went. They came and they went. I think it's reasonable to say accelerators are a permanent part of computing now. Every phone has some accelerators in it. Every laptop, every supercomputer, well, most supercomputers, an accelerator of some sort. Sometimes those accelerators are hidden on the on the CPU, but they have some of the same targeting challenges to use as using a GPU. So if we can generalize that and just accept accelerators as a permanent part pay attention to making code portable so that we can write it, use lots of different accelerators, then we'll innovate on top of that. And then we'll probably have to figure out how to standardize that, you know, 10 years down the road. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yep. Yep. So the problems are still there. They're just more sophisticated problem sets right now. They're higher level problems. Absolutely. Isn't it amazing as we knock off one set of problems and that's all standard now, we invent a new set of problems. And as an engineer, that's super exciting, right? It's the innovations. I mean, we're barely at the start of AI, of course, these days. I mean, I am confident you look back 20 years or 30 years from now, all the AI we're doing now looks so crude, like we didn't even know what we were (laughs) doing, because that's the way computing always is. And so it's an interesting question. What can we do to make our stuff as general as possible, as portable, so that, you know, we can keep growing? Right, right. So one mainstream argument that people make about languages like C++ in the environment that they're in is that, you know, higher levels of programming abstraction is the way to achieve independence from hardware, independence from vendor lock-in, independence from all those sorts of things. The higher you can make your the work of programming, the higher level you make the work of programming, the more independence you can get naturally. I say that because that you hear that, but there's obviously, you know, some fallacies in that argument, right? You know, it's Java is not a replacement for C++. Python is not a replacement for C++. You know, Ruby isn't a replacement for anything. 
higher level languages have advantages for certain classes of problems, but you still need C++ and languages like C++ for certain types of problems. So at least that's that's my view. I'd love to hear if you agree with that. I'm assuming you do, but if you could answer that, but then also ask me, what are the types of problems that really make C++ still the best solution for solving those problems? So I do agree higher level abstractions generally are more portable. And the reason for that is that you're abstracting more. You can even make them more portable by making them less general, right? More domain-specific. So domain-specific capabilities. I look at things like TensorFlow and, you know, PyTorch. To me, those are like domain-specific languages. You're, and whether it's a language or a library, there's an interesting interplay, right? It's the, if the API that I'm programming to is more abstract, it can be more portable. Now, you lose some... If there's an innovation in the hardware that's unique to one vendor, it may be more difficult to take advantage of that. And so there's always a home for, you know, there being something outside of that high level abstraction, a little bit of, you know, extra secret sauce. Everyone needs that, not just one vendor. But that's a little outside the mainstream. The, The mainstream, it's highly desirable to have these high level interfaces, whether they're libraries, languages, whatever, but they have to rest on something. In fact, one of the challenges I think that people writing some of these high-level interfaces are is that there's insufficient uh, foundations for them, right? So in an abstract sense, think about TensorFlow. I think the original version of it targeted NVIDIA GPUs, so it probably did that fairly directly. But then when somebody says, hey, what do you do to support AMD GPUs or Intel GPUs, or can you use my CPU, or can... If I'm a startup and I have a new AI chip, can you target that? You have to go all the way up to TensorFlow and play with its guts. Now, over time, they'll figure out how to generalize it. There's there's other projects I work with, like Cocos in the Defense Department. They do a lot of codes that are run on Nash, in the national labs. They try to write to this Cocos, but then they have backends that target all these different proprietary methods. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to clean things up, like at the C++ level, where if C++ is more portable, then these higher level things can just use C++. Whereas now they're using C++ augmented this way for one vendor, this way for another. And so the future is real clear to me that, you know, you you standardize with C++, you make things written there more portable, you make libraries more portable, the foundational levels. So somebody's always writing those foundational levels. And there's the other thing, of course, of those foundational levels. So the answer to your question, what's C++ good for? First of all, the foundation level, things need to rest on something. C++ is a great level to rest on. The other is, if you're innovating outside the box, if you're trying to do something no one's done before, it's a good chance those abstractions that exist, those domain-specific or abstract languages, aren't quite what you have in mind. You might argue that's where the abstractions, why they get invented though, is <laughs> those abstractions got, were written in C++. So C++ is a great place to innovate, to do new things. And go back to my comment about we're at the very beginning of things like AI. There's so much innovation left. Uh, I'm confident that you'll see a lot of the most radical innovation will happen at the C++ level And it will create an interface that maybe more people use, but the innovation itself came at the C++ level. Got it. Got it. And and the reason for the C++ layer, the reason why you say the C++ layer is so critical is because of the performance characteristics and the, it's a foundational interface. Yes. But 
is the foundational interface because it's high performant or is there more to it than that? It's high performant and it's proven itself to be portable, right? It's it's a layer. So yeah. if you go the level below that would be to start doing assembly language and that's not portable. And whether you be writing an x86 assembly language or PTX for NVIDIA or whatever, it's that next level down is is not portable. So yeah, having something that's performant, reliable, portable, that's a capability that C++ supplies that I have no concerns that C++ is going anywhere. But as we get more and more people we call software developers in the world, C++ won't grow as much as the other areas because the whole purpose of the whole way that we grow more programmers, like I consider data scientists programmers, they're not programming at the C++ level. By the way, just as an off comment, since you made one before, there are more Fortran programmers today than there were 10 years ago, which shocks people. It's not like it's a huge <laughs> growing field, but it is so fundamental as a great language for scientific work and so forth. And there's so many important codes written in it that they you need people working at that level. You don't need an explosion of new people. Like you're not going to double or triple the number of Fortran programmers you need in the world, but you still need a core base. I didn't mean to completely equate C++ to Fortran. C++ is growing, I'm sure, at a faster rate. The analogy does hold. C++ to Fortran compared to higher level abstractions to C++. It's, Absolutely. It's a reasonable analogy. So let's get back into one API for a little bit then. And one API is also a changing standard. And in fact, you've just released a major upgrade of one API, I believe. What are some of the things that are new and innovative in one API today? We did announce a new one API, but this goes back to a little confusion we create because we talk about our tools being one API tools and we talk about the standard. We did release a new set of our tools. So Intel's been doing software tools for many decades now, compilers, analysis tools, libraries, and we support you know one API. So we support this idea of being performance portable across different architectures, strong adherence to standards ranging from OpenMP to, to C++, to Fortran, to Sickle, to the Python. And there's more and more. We work very hard to support those standards, but what we're doing is an implementation that supports Intel's hardware. We also interestingly enough, make sure that there's an easy path to get support for other people's hardware as well. So with our Sickle compiler, there was an interesting challenge because Sickle is, is you know, adds these capabilities to C++, but it has to compile for these different devices. So of course we implemented it so it can compile to Intel GPUs, Intel CPUs, Intel FPGAs, but what about NVIDIA GPUs? What about AMD GPUs? So on. Well, it turns out our technology working in the LLVM compiler world. So it turns out there is an AMD GPU backend in the LLVM world, and there is an NVIDIA backend. And so we made it so that those LLVM backends can be used in conjunction. I call it a plug-in. Not everybody's happy that I start calling it a plug-in, but it kind of stuck. Basically, it's, it's the if we deliver our compiler a certain way so it's not locked up, you can also use the NVIDIA and AMD backends with it. So Codeplay, this company in Edinburgh, Scotland, that actually joined the Intel family about a year ago, we acquired them. They remain fiercely independent. Supporting NVIDIA and AMD is a big part of what they do, trying to make sure things stay open. They make sure that the NVIDIA backend in the LLVM world, the AMD backend in the LLVM world, plug into our compilers. 
So making this work is not, it doesn't just happen, right? I mean, LLVM, it, it should in theory work, but you know, anytime I say, oh, it should just work, it's like, oh, good grief, how much work is it? We make it all just work. So at the sickle level, we want plugins. At other levels, like say with OpenMP, well, that's easier. NVIDIA's got support, AMD's got support. Th these are standards we've already come together on. Fortran, uh, C++, even Python, PyTorch support. So Intel makes sure that we have very serious implementations, but I think a big difference we're doing is we're trying to lead the way on making sure that we aren't doing things that harm the portability of code. And one instance, though, that is kind of interesting, if, if you look at like our approach to parallel STL, a feature of C++, we've got a very serious implementation, but that implementation tries to make rational decisions. Like, if the computation I'm doing, it might be better to keep it on the CPU. You know, it might be so small that offloading it will destroy my performance. Or maybe it does need to be offloaded. Or if the computation before us was offloaded, even if I have a small computation, it might be better to do it on the offload device rather than drag the data back. So we're trying to do that intelligent balancing between the different devices on a system and even make it so that if you have a CPU from one vendor, a GPU from another, or maybe even you know a GPU from another, that we can balance that. And we've made a lot of progress on it, but our approach fundamentally is give the users enough control that they're using the whole machine but that we're doing the intelligent balancing. The same thing applies to do concurrent, which is a Fortran concept or parallel STL. And this is different because most startups or other vendors that have accelerators, their approach has been, oh, I'll give you a parallel STL. And when you link it into you, first of all, the device has to exist when your program runs or else I go, you know, I issue an error code. And then if your device does exist, I offload everything to it. <laughs> big, small, whatever. We don't think that's the right long-term answer, so we're putting the extra engineering effort into saying, can, can we do this intelligently? If I wake up and that parallel STL was linked in, but the device isn't there, I'll just do it on the CPU because instead of aborting the program, and I'll do intelligent work. I think that's the standards are great. Interpretations of standards can be very innovative. So Intel's doing both. We're really supporting standards, but the implementation, the tools we're delivering, people can rely on today also embody this philosophy and demonstrate that what I'm talking about can be done, can be done well. And of course, we're never, it's never perfect. So our users will say, oh, well, you're trying to be brilliant, but you weren't here or here. And then that improves us. And I think we've proven for quite a long time that user feedback definitely gets back into our tools and improves them and makes among the best, if not the best tools available in the industry. Oh, that's great. That's great. So what's next? Where is this technology going next? And specifically, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, please, please talk about AI in that answer. <laughs> AI is a huge topic, as you know. There is a lot to consider there. I think Intel's roles, I'll break it down a few ways. I've already talked about how important I think it is that the foundational elements be portable. Because I think as people are innovating in AI, they're trying to do it in an abstract manner. But if they program down to proprietary interfaces, their code isn't portable. So they can demonstrate it on someone's hardware, 
But then when somebody says, gosh, can I run it on this other hardware? By providing that portable interface, whether it's Sickle or whatnot, it helps AI innovation on top. And by the way, a few months ago, I was at supercomputing. So I'll tell my little side story. You know, I left Intel for a little while. I've been at Intel a long time, but I left Intel for a number of years, kind of semi-retired. I didn't quite get bored, but I came back. But I came back because of one API. It seemed like a worthy thing to come back for. But so I've been back at Intel for a little over three years. You know, you keep telling people, oh, we can solve this problem. We can make things portable. And you wonder, is anyone listening? Can I really deliver? Can we really make it happen? And even though I see some successes, I will tell you the experience of supercomputing a few months ago, talking to customers, it was like, oh my gosh, they are listening. I mean, we, we found people who were using Sickle, some customers that were using Sickle, and the only hardware they used was NVIDIA. And I thought, wait a minute, did you really say what I thought you said? They said, oh yeah, we, we don't want to use proprietary interfaces, but right now we've decided to go with their hardware, but we're going to do it in a non-proprietary way. I'm like, wow, that was not a trivial decision. And they say, oh, yeah, it works great. We had to do this, this, and that, and your tools help us, and these tools from CodePlay. I heard that more than once. And it's like, oh, okay, so this there is a strong desire to see this basic level be more portable, and people get it. So we can help AI that way, foundational. The other thing, though, is Intel has had a long history at making things ubiquitous. And so, you know, you'll hear Intel talking about AI PC, and I'm super excited about that because, you know, I get to work with a lot of people in a very rarefied space. I mean, I, I have had the good fortune of working with people who get Nobel Prizes, that get Gordon Bell Prizes, things like that. You know, they're, they're the scientists that wow all of us, myself, you know, among their bigger fans, right? But what about the rest of us, right? And it's like, you know, I, I remember, you know, mainframes and many computers were great, but when you actually got a PC in front of you, everyone had one. Well, we still have that. We have devices right in front of us and AI techniques are filtering down. And it's amazing as computers get more and more powerful, like we were talking about tools getting powerful over 30 years, the PC can do a lot. And the AI techniques, we're learning so much about them. We've innovated yeah, we can put large language models, we can put head tracking, we can put all sorts of AI right in your, your hands. And, and of course, it's already happening. You already have some AI in phones and whatnot. I think that's going to be a big exploding area, you know, expanding. So I think Intel is going to help a lot. You know, just the engineering of these AI platforms that are everywhere. Couple that with our very open approach to software and another thing to throw in is is trust, and that comes in many different forms. I, uh, you know, it's there are all sorts of great topics about trusted AI, and then of course there's also security. And Intel is very active in both discussions, hoping that we can be a positive aspect to delivering AI in a secure and reliable fashion. I've never been a fan of apocalyptic sci-fi, if that makes any sense. I, I'm a huge <laughs> Star Trek fan. And when people say, why are you such a Star Trek fan? It's like, because Gene Roddenberry believed technology would make the world better. That's a very different view than some apocalyptic movies, which we can all enjoy. But... I share your views on that topic. <laughs> it's, I don't like you know the, the zombie apocalypse types of science fiction, but I'm a huge science fiction fan. And I fully buy into the, the Star Trek concept of the 
feature of technology. Absolutely. So my fellow engineers at Intel, and I think most engineers I work with at other companies too, are hoping that our technology can bring that goodness out in the world and minimize how much badness it gets used for. And so I think that's very important, especially with Intel's role at helping make it more open and make it more ubiquitous. Thank you very much, James. I, I have to tell you, this has been a absolutely fun interview because it it brought me back to my roots. This, these conversations are conversations I used to have in, when I worked at Hewlett Packard. I loved that job. I loved doing all that work. And, you know, I've moved on to do other things in recent decades, <laughs> but my roots are still strong in that area. And so it was great to have this conversation and to kind of go back to those roots. So Thank you very much for joining me today on Software Engineering Daily. It was my pleasure, and I hope I get the good fortune to run into you again in the future. 